I now ask you to turn back to the passage I read to you just a few moments ago from 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1. Since we were together uh, last week, uh, something has occurred in my life. I've become a year older. Uh, about, a, about a week ago, and of course, Brad reminded us with his remarks last week that I've been a pastor longer than he's been alive. He hasn't pulled that one in a while. I told him years ago our friendship didn't have much of a future if he prefaced every question with, since you've been a pastor longer than I've been alive. But I want to give you an assignment because I want to know if through biblical numerology there's any significance to this, because this month of March I turned 74, but also this month of March I've been a pastor for 47 years, and which is just the reverse of 74. So you search that out for me, Brad, and tell me what spiritual significance that may have. Stay away from the Gnostic Gospels, I'm afraid what you might find. <clears throat> Well, I made some initial remarks a few moments ago about God revealing Himself uh, to us. And certainly, Christianity is seen to be and understood to be, by people of the faith and not, a revealed religion. It's distinctly unique compared to the major religions of the world in that the Bible teaches that God has revealed Himself to us. And I was thinking about the fact that I've been a pastor for 47 years. I was ordained uh, 44 years ago. And to go through the ordination and the denomination of which I have been ordained, you have to write a paper kind of defending your positions on all the major doctrines of Christianity. And if I may quote myself, I want to read to you a brief paragraph I put at the introduction, because in 44 years, I don't know that I would say it any differently, and my view has not changed. But my doctrinal statement, I began with these words, initiate is defined by Webster's New Collegiate Dictionary, quote, to cause or facilitate the beginning of. That accurately describes what God has done in revealing Himself to mankind. God has taken the initiative in letting us know something about Him. If God had not taken this initiating step, we could know nothing about Him. Fortunately for us, God has lifted the veil and has uncovered and brought to light knowledge of Himself. And interestingly enough, the word to reveal in Hebrew, gala, and in New Testament Greek, apocalypto, basically mean the same thing. And it means to unveil or to uncover. And that's what the Creator God has done. He has lifted the veil that we might know something about Him, and most importantly, how we relate to Him. And as I've already stated, the two main ways He has done that is through the incarnate Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, the written word. Uh, Pastor Brad actually made reference uh, to the incarnate word uh, just last week. And then, of course, a couple of weeks before that, he preached from the text in 2 Timothy on all scriptures inspired of God and profitable for teaching reproof, uh, etc. But of course, uh, that 
powerful prologue to John's gospel concerning Jesus as the incarnate word uh, can be said no more clearly than this when John recorded, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so Peter here, beginning uh, in verse 16 of chapter 1, his first sentence is, for we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses. Now, when he says we, he is there referring to himself and his uh, fellow uh, apostles. It also seems clear to me that, and to many others, that in verse 16, when he says that they made known to him the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, that that is not referring to Jesus being born in Bethlehem, but rather that is referring to Jesus coming back a second time, as had been prophesied by all the prophets. And one of the reasons that we're inclined to think that it's the second coming is because of the word he uses for the coming of our Lord, which is the word parousia. And it appears 24 times in the New Testament, and the vast majority of the time it's referring to the second coming of Christ, so much so that that Greek word parousia, or parousia as some pronounce it, is, uh, has entered our English vocabulary as a word we use to refer to the return of Christ. But I also think he's thinking about the return of Christ, because when he's giving the purpose of the letter in chapter 3, if you turn over your page to 2 Peter chapter 3, he says, beginning in verse 1, this is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. And so there were those that were really starting to question the fact that Jesus Christ was coming back as the apostles continued uh, to proclaim. And so for those reasons... He is saying that he, along with his fellow apostles, have uh, proclaimed to them that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back in power and then in majesty, which we'll talk about uh, in just a moment. But one of the things I really want us to take away from this text today is the fact that Peter, by saying something about the incarnate word and then bringing up the matter of the written word, that he is seeking to validate the truth of the claims that they make as apostles of Christ. That is, he's bringing validation to the, the veracity and the authenticity of their message. And I don't know if you've taken note of this in your own study of Scripture, but the historical veracity of the Christian message rests in part 
on the fact that it's confirmed by eyewitnesses. And he mentions that specifically. We were eyewitnesses of His majesty. It's so important to the New Testament writers that they constantly make mention of it. Uh, remember early on in the book of Acts, in chapter 1, in fact, uh, they're talking about the fact that Judas, of course, was dead, and they felt it was necessary to replace him with another man to fill in for the 12 apostles that Jesus had appointed. And one of the things they say about finding a candidate, and I'm picking up mid-sentence, beginning with the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And so one of the requirements for someone to have the status of an apostle was they had to have witnessed personally the resurrected Lord Jesus. When Peter goes on to give his first sermon in front of that massive crowd by the temple in Acts chapter 2, and he starts back in the Old Testament and he works his way up, up until the coming of Christ and then his crucifixion and his death, and then he says this, this Jesus God raised up again to which we were all witnesses. When the Apostle Paul is addressing the issue of resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered to you as first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and after that He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And later on in this same chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Paul acknowledges that if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, then they have proven to be liars. They have been false witnesses uh, to the fact that Christ has been raised if indeed there is no resurrection from the dead. Uh, this is John. To take another example, in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, remember how he begins that letter? What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father was manifested to us. And so there's this very real, upfront, close, personal observation and testimony they give from what they had seen and heard themselves. But perhaps no one states the case of their intention to be so precise and so exact in what they reported and recorded about the mission and message of the Lord Jesus. I love the way Luke begins his gospel. And of course, Luke has written more of the New Testament than any other one writer in terms of volume of words, because he wrote Acts as well. But Luke begins with just these four verses, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the Word." 
it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. In our legal system, in the courtroom, we typically have two kinds of witnesses. And the documents actually define them as lay witnesses and expert witnesses. And lay witnesses is anyone who can contribute anything that from their perspective and knowledge they could contribute to whatever the case is before the court. But sometimes they call in what are called expert witnesses. And an expert witness is one who has extensive experience or knowledge in a specific field or discipline. And their opinion must be based on sufficient facts or data and reliable principles and methods. And when I read that definition of an expert witness, that's what we have when it comes to Luke as well as to the apostles and what they have recorded and what we refer to as the New Testament. Uh, concerning Luke... I'd like to pass this little historical nugget along. <clears throat> there was a man uh, back who lived in the middle of the uh, 19th century to the middle of the 20th century. Uh, his name was Sir William Ramsey. He was trained in what is called the Tübingen School in Germany, which was very liberal. It denied the inerrancy of Scripture. It denied the physical resurrection of Christ. It was just the, the seedbed of of uh, biblical uh, liberalism. And that's where he was trained. And like so many others, when he finished his training, he agreed with other scholars that much of the New Testament historically was not reliable. But he became fascinated and uh, learned all the biblical languages, even studied Sanskrit for a while. He was a very brilliant man, Sir William Ramsey. And he decided to start going to Greece and to Turkey and around the Eastern Mediterranean with the book of Acts, trying to follow what Luke had recorded with the intention of showing how inaccurate it was as a history. And lo and behold, at the end of several years of going to excavation after excavation, reading the book of Acts, trying to find these locations on ancient maps, he discovered that Luke was absolutely precise having mentioned over 50 cities by name, over nine Mediterranean islands, over 65 different people groups, and he found that all of them were confirmed. And he ended up becoming a believer in the veracity of the New Testament, uh, was on the um, faculty at Oxford University, uh, then became on the faculty at Aberdeen, and just a, a brilliant man. But, and examples like that are just by the dozens, if not hundreds, so, Peter is speaking uh, as, as an eyewitness, and so we have this apostolic witness. But here in this letter, Peter refers to having been an eyewitness to an event in addition to the resurrection of Jesus. And this other event that he alludes to here uh, has a ring of familiarity about it because of the divine affirmation that is given to Jesus by God the Father himself. 
And he's referring to the transfiguration. That's why he references what we witnessed on the holy mountain. And I, I don't know if I should assume that everyone's real familiar, but there is uh, an account. I'll read Mark's account. Actually, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three record this incident. If you want to turn there, it's Mark chapter 9. It's not long. And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought him up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Maybe one of the biggest understatements in Scripture. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son, listen to him. All at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. So it's that incident that Peter, when he speaks of being an eyewitness in this context in Second Peter, he's referring to that event. When you read Mark along with Matthew and Luke, those three descriptions combine to portray an extraordinary experience and a transformation in Jesus' appearance as the God-man. And garments, a radiant white. Uh, Mark's the only one who says that it was so white, even a launderer couldn't make it any whiter. So your oxyclean, your tide isn't going to do better than how white his garment was showing at that moment. Uh, Matthew adds that his face shone like the sun. Another says his clothes flashed like lightning. And so this was a splendorous, supernatural thing that they were witnessing. And of course, two other people show up. So there's Moses and Elijah there. And you might stop and ask, why on this occasion, in addition to the majesty of Jesus being put on full display for them, why were Moses and Elijah in particular the two that were there um, at the same time? Well, I think that it's uh, rather forthright to observe that Moses certainly represented the law, and Elijah certainly represented the prophets in general. Uh, Moses had the experience of having met with God on Mount Horeb, after the Mount Carmel incident, when Elijah goes off and gets discouraged, he has a meeting at Mount Horeb with God. Uh, both of them left the world in very unusual ways. Moses, in a way, died and is 
seems to be buried by God himself in a place that no one knows. And of course, we all remember how Elijah left in a whirlwind that was something quite spectacular. And, um, and of course, even as Mark's uh, account gives us, I mean, Peter has this impulsive reaction, and Peter was given to being impulsive, but hey, it's really good we're here. But it also said they were terrified. And so the idea of building through three booths or tabernacles for each of them came from a sincere heart. But also it said a cloud formed. And see, even the cloud forming at the transfiguration spoke of God directly intervening and appearing to and speaking to his people. Uh, Moses met God in a cloud. When people came to the tabernacle, when God's presence was there, it was through a cloud. When Solomon dedicated his temple, the cloud filled uh, the temple. Uh, the Jews, uh, in their writings, had every expectation that when the Messiah returned, that the cloud would once again fill uh, the temple. But it was not just that they were eyewitnesses of his majesty, because they were also earwitnesses, because they heard a voice from heaven, it says in verse 17. And this voice, which why has the ring of familiarity, much like when he was baptized, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. But of course, at the transfiguration, there's added the exhortation, listen to him, that is, take heed, obey. But we have this voice from heaven giving this complete and total endorsement of Jesus, the Son of God, by God the Father. Listen to him, give heed. I'm not going to get into a geographical discussion with you about where this Mount of Transfiguration is. Uh, there's two main mountains. One is Mount Tabor uh, near the Sea of Galilee. The other is Mount Hermon uh, north of the Sea of Galilee, some 55 miles or so. Uh, I've been to both places, and I sat there and listened to our professor lecture on giving the arguments for and against which mountain it is. But regardless, one of those mountains is where Jesus was transfigured. But the significance of the transfiguration and why Peter is emphasizing that they were eyewitnesses of this event, because it occurred at a crucial point for the disciples. You see, one week earlier, before the transfiguration, Jesus declared that he must go to Jerusalem and die and rise from the dead. And obviously the disciples are shocked, they're dismayed, tensions are running high, and to have witnessed the transfiguration was encouraging to reaffirm in their minds Jesus' supremacy, He is God in the flesh, and even though they still stutter-stepped in the aftermath once the resurrection had happened, they would look back with a full understanding of what that meant. And so, we have the evidence, the eyewitness evidence of God incarnate. Then he moves on in verses 19 through 21 and brings up the matter of the written word. Uh, the written word. He says in verse 19 that we have the prophetic word made more sure. Now, there's two ways we can take that. How is it that the prophetic word is made more sure? 
Well, one way to understand it would be that the Scriptures, the prophetic word meaning the Old Testament Scriptures, confirm or make sure the apostolic witness. So it's kind of giving a stamp of imprimatur to what the apostles are witnessing because the prophets spoke of the majesty and glory that would attend the Messiah. But it also could be that the apostolic witness itself fulfills and authenticates the prophetic word. New American Standard Bible, as I read it, said we have the prophetic word made more sure. I think many of you have the ESV. It says that the prophetic word is more fully confirmed, also rendered as completely reliable, strongly confirmed, a greater confidence. The language simply means that which is steadfast or sure, firm, established. And so the prophetic word is all the more established and firmed on what the prophets predicted and what the apostles have witnessed and proclaimed. Then he makes the statement, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Again, I understand that to be language looking to the return of Christ with the dawning of the day and even mentioning the term uh, morning star. Uh, it doesn't always refer uh, to Jesus in Scripture, but we know it's mentioned twice over in the book of Revelation where he says to one of the churches that when they've overcome, he would give them the morning star. But at the very end of the book of Revelation, in chapter 22, verse 16, Jesus is speaking, and he says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. And the imagery here is the image, well, actually the word, you would recognize it in English, the Greek word it comes from. It's uh, phosphoros, where we get our word phosphorus. And it's two words put together. It means light and to bear. So it's a light bearer or one who brings uh, the light. I try to make it my habit to walk several mornings a week, usually at 5 a.m., and it's still dark. And as most of you know, if you're ever up that time of day and you look at a clear sky... There's one star or one planet that stands out above all the others, and that's Venus. Uh, it's close to us, but it shines so bright. And people often saw that as uh, the precursor to the dawn that's coming. And Jesus, as the bright and morning star, is the one who is coming uh, to instigate all the events that will take place when he comes back to this earth uh, a second time. But he goes on to say, but know this, first of all, in verse 20, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Interpretation. Only place in the New Testament this appears as a noun. But it does appear, appear elsewhere as a verb. And it means uh, to loosen or to unravel in the sense of explaining or solving. 
something. And in fact, when Jesus is teaching in parables, and it tells us over in Mark chapter 4, but he, Jesus, was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. That word explaining is the verb form of this noun that is translated as interpretation. What Peter is talking about here is the divine origin of the written Word of God. Because he wants them to know that it's not just a matter of a human being, which is why he says in verse 21, no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. So the prophets wrote, yes, but the origin of what they wrote was ultimately not themselves, but God himself, who is... Uh, giving his inspired word to them uh, to, the re to record, which is why I suggested in your bulletin there that with the written word, first we see the source as God himself, but secondly, the channel for that word to come is man. I mean, human beings recorded it. As he puts it, men moved by the Holy Spirit of God. Moved. How does that happen? What is it that's happening when men are moved by the Holy Spirit of God to write God's Word? I don't know how dogmatic you know, we can be, but I do take note of this, that when he says moved, that is a word that's a nautical term in Koine Greek. In fact, it's the same word that's used in Acts 27 when we read a violent wind and then when the ship was caught in it, we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along. It's the same word. Uh, the way that the wind drives a ship is the way the Holy Spirit moves men uh, to record His Word. And indeed, the Lord has guided men to record His Word. I'm just going to remind you of four examples from the Old Testament. Exodus 34, then the Lord said to Moses, write down these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he's communicating to Moses, he's instructing him, write these things down. Jeremiah 36, take again another scroll and write on it all the former words that were on the first scroll which Jehoiakim the king of Judah burned. So even though some uh, scripture had been burned, Jeremiah is given instruction by the Lord to write it again. The prophet Habakkuk, then the Lord answered me and said, record the vision and inscribe it on tablets that the one who reads it may run. One last example, Jeremiah. Then the Lord stretched out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Now that's just a, a sampling of how often this instruction is given that when the prophets wrote, they knew that they were writing by the unction of the Holy Spirit and that God was directing them to record what they were saying. When Pastor Brad was uh, in 2 uh, Timothy 3.16, um, I just listened to that message because I wasn't here. I listened to it yesterday. 
uh, I can't remember if you mentioned the term theopneustos, the word for uh, inspired, but it literally means God breathed or even expiration, expiring, that it comes uh, from God himself. And so, again, it begs the question, well, how does this happen? And often skeptics will say, well, how do we know Jeremiah and Habakkuk heard it right? Maybe they didn't write it down exactly the way they were supposed to. Well, certainly this was not some kind of mechanical dictation. They went into some sort of hypnotic trance and just kind of wrote as the Holy Spirit. There's nothing to indicate it was like that. Uh, They were not like robotic secretaries, but rather they were men in their context and in their culture and their understanding and their personalities and their gifts. God chose them to be the conduits through which he wanted to communicate certain things, which is why you would expect the diversity of styles in the Bible. 66 books written by over 40 authors, yet a consistent theme throughout, but real differences in style that come through because God did not ignore the personalities of the men who recorded Scripture. But they did not think this up on their own. In fact, he says, uh, no prophecy was ever made by an act of, of human will. In fact, uh, Jeremiah at one point is uh, kind of pointing the finger at false prophets and says, they speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. So when we talk about the Bible being inspired, and Pastor Brad and I I really have grown to be very fond of your doing this. Uh, He usually says when he begins the message, Beloved, this is the infallible, inerrant Word of God. And those are two of the terms in the bouquet of terminology that we define the Scripture by. Uh, Infallible simply means incapable of error. Inerrant means without error in all that it teaches. We often use the word plenary concerning the inspired Scripture, which means fully inspired in all of its parts. Uh, We talk about verbal inspiration, that God communicated through human language. And then one last thing we typically would say is that the Bible is inerrant, infallible, fully inspired in the original writings or the original autographs. And all that's acknowledging is that it is true as the Bible has been translated and translated and retranslated through the centuries that there have been some discrepancies that have emerged. But don't be alarmed by that because even skeptics, pagan scholars will acknowledge that when you're talking about any differences in accuracy and translation over the millennia, that we're talking about less than 5% of all Scripture, and some say it's as little as 2%. And certainly the discrepancies don't touch on any major doctrine that defines how we relate uh, to God. And those words, infallible, inerrant, plenary, verbal, those terms leave no room for some who have suggested along the way Well, it's not that every word's inspired, but just the general thoughts. There's some scholars who teach that. 
Uh, other Christian denominations will even use terminology such as uh, the Bible contains the Word of God. And if you dig a little deeper, that means that not all of it's the Word of God, but you need to discover which parts are. Uh, still others uh, have proposed that the Bible becomes the Word of God in one's existential experience, where you read it, you get something from it, and it might be different when I read it, when I get something from it. Something else that is dangerous ground is when people try to divide Jesus' words from the apostles. It's almost like they think the real authority is the red-letter edition, where Jesus' words are in red. And somehow, because Jesus addresses this issue or doesn't address an issue, and the apostles do, that somehow we need to see the apostles' writing as inferior. That is not the doctrine of Scripture. All Scripture is inspired. Jesus gives his stamp of imprimatur not only on the Old Testament, but in commissioning them as apostles to record his word as they spread the message. And then, of course, a real obvious one. Some want to just discount the Old Testament altogether because it's not relevant for today because it's all about judgment and no love, which is a gross misunderstanding, but nonetheless. So if I could summarize uh, this point, the cause of inspiration is God. The means of inspiration is men moved by the Holy Spirit. And the result of inspiration is God's Word in men's language. And I found it uh, very helpful when I was a, a seminary student. My theology professor uh, talked about uh, the, the chain from God to us. And there's three main links in this chain. I've probably shared this sometime in an adult class. But the three links in the chain from God to us, the first link in the chain is revelation, the fact of divine communication that God has revealed himself. The second link in the chain is inspiration, and that's the means of divine communication. And then the third link is illumination, and that is being given the gift of understanding that which God has communicated, which can only happen you know, through uh, the Holy Spirit. Now, in response to uh, critics who say certainly mistakes must have entered into, and if, you're got, if you have fallible human beings and you have human beings who are sinful, how in the world can they record a pure, inspired Word of God? And the analogy that was uh, sometimes given by the skeptic was that picture a stained glass window with all the beautiful panes of glass in it of various colors and designs. You have the pure Word of God coming, as it were, as a light. But we don't get that pure Word of God because it comes through these human beings and various colors and refractions give us something that's substantive, but it's not the exact pure Word of God. Well, my professor said the only problem with that analogy is that if God is the architect who built the stained glass window and placed the colors and the design of the pieces just where he wanted so that what came out on the other side was exactly what he intended, I think that's the better way 
to understand that analogy. I know I'm getting into some apologetics here, but it's good for you. Anyway, um, I found that really helpful, you know, back when I was uh, first studying um, theology. So we have a verified revelation, the incarnate word, apostolic eyewitness, the divine affirmation, and the written word. The source of the written word is from God, and the channel is He's used human beings. I want to uh, conclude uh, by quoting one of my favorite people. He's with the Lord now, John Stott. And he has this little paragraph about what he calls double authorship, I'm referring to Scripture. So with the Bible, on the one hand, the Bible is the Word of God. God spoke, deciding himself what he intended to say, yet not in such a way as to distort the personality of the human authors. On the other hand, the Bible is the Word of men. Men spoke using their faculties freely, yet not in such a way as to distort the truth of the divine message. The double authorship of the Bible will affect the way in which we read it, because it is the word of men. We shall study it like every other book, using our minds, investigating its words, its historical origins, its literary composition. But because it is also the word of God, we shall study it like no other book, on our knees, humbly, crying to God for illumination and for the ministry of the Holy Spirit, without whom we can never understand the Word. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have lifted the veil to show us Yourself. And Lord, we understand the testimony of Scripture that you did this because you love us and you want to relate to us as you intended in the beginning in the garden. And so we do thank you for the incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, who is now glorified at your right hand, but one day will come back. And Lord, uh, we do say, Come, Lord Jesus. It is a hope and expectation of our hearts. And we also thank you for your word, that it is a light unto our path, that when we read it, study it, and pray over it, we find it to be as sweet as the honeycomb. And Lord, it gives us the direction and everything we need to know about a life of godliness and what it means to know you and walk with you. So, Lord, I thank you for the chapel that the people who have gathered here from the earliest days wanted us to be a church that was committed to the Word. I thank you for our pastor, Brad, who is committed to studying and teaching and breaking this Word open to us each week. And, Lord, we pray that, as always, when we come to the Scripture, that we would not only be gaining information but that we would be finding transformation in our hearts and minds as we seek to be more like Christ. And like Pastor Brad said last week, the Scripture, the Word, is the lifeblood of the church. And may we never veer from that. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.